not finished registering for either our small groups or the men's retreat, go ahead and finish up with that. But the rest of us would find our way back inside. That would be helpful. Just give a quick thank you to many of you who have expressed to me you were praying for some meetings that I was participating in this week. I had gone to Philadelphia and uh, met with the leadership team of Sovereign Grace and the other regional leaders who support and care for the churches in our network of churches. And it was some wonderful meetings, some great time with those men. Thankful, thank you for your prayers. Um, I was in the heart of South Philly. I, I mean, I was looking for Rocky Balboa everywhere I went. <laughs> I swore I saw Butkus, his dog, being walked by somebody else, but uh, it was a great time being there. Uh, speaking of churches, you know, we talked a lot when we were in Philadelphia just about church planting and uh, helping churches get started, helping churches get established, etc. And, and we are honored to have some guests here in our midst uh, who are... Uh, part of a church plant team going to St. Rose out of uh, First Baptist Church in Kenner. Uh, and their pastor, Brandon, is here. Brandon, you got your team. Can all you guys who are part of the St. Rose church plant stand up? We just welcome you guys. So great to have you. You can remember to be praying for them in the days ahead as they seek to get a church established there in St. Rose. Excited to see what God will do there with them. Well, this morning we are continuing a little mini-series that we're going to start the year with. It's, it's actually a study in the Lord's Prayer, but I'm hanging it under the umbrella of fighting for awareness. Uh, there are things in the Lord's Prayer that God has intended us to be aware of, to be affected by. And, you know, it's always interesting to, uh, as I mentioned last week, we, we, we start the new year and seeking to be attentive to, Lord, what, what might you be saying to us as we start this year uh, as a church, as a people in this hour? And, and I had not had an intention. I'd had a sense of something the Lord wanted us to do at the beginning of the year uh, for some part of last year. But I hadn't really intended to land us in the Lord's prayer uh, as a means of, of receiving some thoughts from the Lord uh, as we are. And then as I've done that, uh, just, this is what God seems to be doing. Uh, I hadn't had any previous conversation. Jason has started some uh, ministry activity on Tulane's campus that's, that's centered in the Lord's prayer. So he and I kind of collided in the hallway and it's like, wow, isn't this kind of exciting what God's doing? Uh, and then I'm, I'm at this gathering with the leadership team in Philadelphia, and I'm talking with Bob Coughlin, uh, who directs Sovereign Grace Music, and, and he is working on releasing the next worship CD, which will be based on the Lord's Prayer, and it will be released sometime in the summer. And so I told him he was a little late with his revelation, because it'd be great to have that music right now for what we're doing. But anyway... Well, let me get some thought here with us because awareness and fighting for awareness, I think the Lord's Prayer is, is a tremendously helpful thing that God's given us for that. But we, we need to fight for awareness because we are being made aware of so much stuff uh, in the day and age in which we live, unlike maybe any other age that's gone before us. 
to get some help from a man named Daniel Levitin, who's a neuroscientist. He's written a couple of bestsellers in that category. Daniel's not a believer. Uh, he is, he is he trying to make sense of life without God. But he has some interesting insights into just the human capacity to interact with so much information. In his book, he says, from traffic jams in Singapore to the weather on Mars, we're just getting so much more information shot at us. The global economy means we are exposed to large amounts of information that our grandparents weren't. We hear about revolutions and economic problems in countries halfway around the world as they're happening. We see images of places we've never visited and hear languages spoken that we've never heard before. Our brains are hungrily soaking all this in because, well, that's what they're designed to do. But at the same time, all this stuff is competing for neuroattentional resources with the things we need to know to live our lives. Right? Hang on to that little phrase. What, what exactly do we need to know? to live our lives and what we don't need to know to live our lives. But we are living in an age that's treating our capacity like we're infinite. Like we have the capacity to take in endless information, to interact with an endless amount of people, to be focused on all kinds of possibilities, to, to never stop shopping for more information and more possibilities. But we are limited creatures. And at some point, we will become aware of something at the expense of being aware of something else. And that's a huge danger in the age in which we live. And so I, I want to highlight that I think prayer serves as a unique tool, a unique means that God has created to make us aware of things. Prayer makes us aware. And there is an interaction that we do with prayer that's different than maybe anything else that we do. We are in the presence of God, communicating with God, being led by God, opening our souls and our hearts to God in such a way that things have an opportunity to go down deep inside of us in a way that nothing else does that for us. Prayer is to be guarded. Prayer is precious. Prayer is unique in our lives, and, and we need to fight for some space for that. Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, says, with all this in view, and in this, this, this for him in this context, is the experiential component of prayer. And, and I just want to highlight for us, I know some of us have the hardest time climbing into a prayer closet because it's it's dry and it doesn't have rich experience to it. It doesn't call out to us. It's not compelling because we're just not experiencing something in that setting. And, and it's off the tracks when that's happening. Not every experience will be the same, but it is to be an experiential setting where the reality and the presence of God has an impact on us. So he's speaking of that when he says this. He says, with all this in view, we can define prayer as a personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. It means that prayer is profoundly altered by the amount and accuracy of that knowledge, right? We need to know something to be able to pray effectively and meaningfully. Calvin observed that we all refashion that sense of deity to fit our own interests and desires, unless through the Spirit and the Scripture, our view of God is corrected 
and clarified. Right? So we're going we're gonna to climb into a prayer closet. Something in our life, quite honestly, is going to drive us into our prayer closet. You may have had that experience this week. Something in your life became so weighty, so threatening, so unexplainable, so destructive, that it drove you to prayer. And in that moment, you went into that prayer setting armed with thoughts and impressions and ideas about God. And this little phrase here is a dangerous phrase, but it's just too true. Calvin says, we all refashion that sense of deity to fit our own interests and desires. So life has bowled me over, and I'm going to climb into my prayer closet, and I'm going to refashion and reshape God around my interests and my desires. That's a danger, isn't it? And humbly, it's what every one of us do. We fight with God about the events in our lives, and we think he ought to think the way we think about that event. He ought to bring about the outcome that we think would be the best outcome in that event. We think God is a certain way. But some people are praying who've never even read the Bible. Right? You may be here this morning, and, and, and if I were to just bump into you in the foyer and say, hey, do you pray? Do you have a prayer life? And you'd say, well, yeah, sure. I mean, doesn't everybody? And I were to ask you, well, how, how much of the Bible do you spend time reading? Well, you know, not a whole lot. I mean, I've read some from time to time. Right? Do you understand when you climb into your prayer closet, whatever that is, you climb in with an idea about who it is you're connecting with and what he wants to talk about and what's important and how do you feel about it and what are the priorities in that moment. And you have created all of that out of something other than the inspired word of God. So it's very likely you have a concept of God that could be very inaccurate. You have a concept about life and its priorities and what's important that could be very inaccurate and yet you are doing something that you're calling prayer. Right? Warning, you may be doing something, but it may be miles away from what the Bible is referring to as prayer. A poor knowledge of God, a poor knowledge of what God is doing in this world, a poor knowledge of the revelation that God has already given doesn't lead to a healthy prayer time. So we need some helpful, accurate information here. And that's what the Lord's Prayer is going to do for us. Right? That little phrase that Daniel Levitin said, he says, uh, there's this crowding out effect from the things we need to know to live our lives. All right, well, what exactly are those things? What exactly do I need to know and know well and know deeply in order to live my life? Well, in two places in the New Testament, we have Jesus giving instruction to his disciples about how to pray. Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 6. And if prayer is this unique thing that the scriptures seem to make it out to be, and it's an important thing, then I would think whatever Jesus gives instruction in this category, this is the content for prayer. This is what you bring with you into your prayer cloud. These are the kinds of things you talk about with God when you pray. Well, then this stuff must be important. I can't be thin in any of these areas. I can't have weak insights or I haven't thought about that in a long time. That cannot be who I am. The Son of God has given a very limited instruction in this category. Right? There are several prayers that Jesus prays, but, but this is a specific instruction to his disciples. When you pray, guys, this is what you cover. Well, this must be important stuff, right? So let's look in Matthew chapter 6 together in verse 9, and let's read together these instructions that Jesus gave 
about what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. Verse 9 says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, Lord, these words are unique. Lord, what powerful instruction that you gave to your disciples that you have passed on to us that in the moment in which we would have an audience with the ultimate being of all beings, the one who has more to say over the future of our lives, over this world, over the creation, Lord, this is what you want us to talk about with you. So God, would you heighten our sense of awareness? Would you draw our attention to these places? Would you give us insights that will help us to live a life for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're here. I put in your outline, I think, these brief categories of awareness, right? Be aware of these things is what Jesus says in this prayer. One, an awareness of the person of God, who he is and what he is like, which we'll cover today. Two, an awareness of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of earth, and the conflict in which our lives are set. We need to know something about that deeply. Three, an awareness of our need and our need to look to the creator for provision is in this prayer. Fourth, an awareness of our sin, our need for forgiveness, and of our need for help with temptations. And fifth, an awareness of evil and our need for deliverance. And this is where I hope for us to get through all of those in the coming Weeks, But today we're just going to cover category number one, which is an awareness of who God is. Who is this God that we look to, that we relate to, that we pray to, that we have in our lives? Who is he? Right, one of my favorite quotes from A.W. Tozer, because I think it's so extremely true, is what, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You may not have thought that through real well, but depending on who you think God is and what he's like, how he's involved in your life or not involved in your life, what he's for and what he's against, what kind of power he has and influence he has, depending on how you're thinking about some of those things will determine quite a bit about your life. What do I understand about God? What kind of questions are you asking about God? I mean, I've asked different questions along the, the journey of getting to know God, the journey of life. You know, is, is, God, is God personal? Is he powerful? Is he present? Is God with you right now in this moment? Is God knowable? I mean, there's, there's lots of people out there who have a concept of some kind of higher power, some deity out there that's done something that put things into existence, but they don't know him and they kind of don't act like he's knowable. Now, well, is your God knowable? Is he intimate? 
Does, does he get down into the nitty-gritty of your life? Does he care about the details of your life? Is he aware of the details of your life? Is he distant? You know, there's a lot of talk in this country about, you know, this is a Christian country and the framers of the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. You'd be a little shocked to find out how many of the framers of the Constitution were deists. And if you don't know what a deist is, a deist is somebody who believes that there's some kind of higher power. But what basically this deist did was he spun the universe into existence, turned his back on it, and left it to itself. And so then you begin to explain everything that exists in that world out of natural things because the God who made everything is not really involved in day-to-day activity. Is that what you believe about God? I mean, what's what's he like? Is is he dispassionate? Does he not care? Right, because there are moments where you feel like he doesn't care, right? There are moments where I question God's care. You bump into experiences. Is God like the Wizard of Oz? You know, it's mysterious, there's a lot of smoke and there's a lot of explosions, he's intimidating, you know, uh, or is he more like the force, right? This strange being, maybe not even a personality holding all things together that we just kind of spiritually tap into. Listen, these are, these are questions that everybody is asking or should be asking in some ways. That The real question then is where are you finding the answers for those questions, How do you discover who this God is? And can you even discover who this God is? Well, it's interesting in this prayer that this is where Jesus begins. Jesus sets the priority that the most important thing that you and I do in prayer is not download to God a shopping list. Uh, Prayer is not a complaint session where I take God to task because my life isn't turning out the way I thought it was going to turn out. And uh, he's customer service. And I'm showing up, and I pull a ticket, and I let him know, this is what I'm not liking, God. You have got some explaining to do. That's not where prayer begins. Prayer gets into those categories, but it doesn't begin there. Jesus sets the priority by starting this way. When you pray, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We haven't even begun to discuss your life yet, have we? You're not even in the conversation yet. God and God alone is in the conversation. Let's make sure we're thinking right about God. That's what's in the conversation. And and by the way, this is the pattern throughout all of Scripture. You know, I know I I say this probably a lot. I hope a lot. But, you know, if you pick the Bible up and you go, you know, a mysterious book, all these people dressed weird, riding camels and saying things I can't understand. What, What the heck is this about? All right, basic, don't ever overlook the simplicity of this. This book is about God. There's a lot of people in here. There's a big cast of characters. There's life being done here. There's activity that we're supposed to discern and understand. But more than anything else, this is a book about God. You know, remember, we're studying the book of Exodus. We're going to get back into that in several weeks. You know, at some point here, the, the, the big thrust of the book of Exodus, if you're not careful, the big thrust of the book of Exodus can become, if you're man-centered in your thinking, can become man being liberated from oppression. That's what the Exodus is about, right? It's man's liberation from things that oppress him. Deliverance from Egypt is what it's about. Uh, but that overlooks something. They are being delivered from something to something. 
Exodus is a book about being delivered to God. They don't just get set free. They don't wander in the wilderness. They don't just have this, hey, I finally shook off my shackles. They have an appointment with God. When they get to Mount Sinai, the first order of business, you're going to see this before, you know, as the Ten Commandments are being given, the first order of business is God declaring to them who he is. I am the Lord God who delivered you out of bondage, out of the land of Egypt. He introduces himself and he says, first order of business, you shall have no other gods before me. So before God ever steps into the realm of, hey, you know, come, come show me where your bobos are. Come show me what is it, it is about life you'd like to ask some questions about. God's first order of business is this is who I am. The New Testament says the same thing. You know, Jesus declared to people, in, in this is eternal life. In this. You want to know what eternal life is about? In this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. That's the first order of business in this prayer. Now, I know when I climb into my prayer closet, <clears throat> I'm usually being driven there by the events of life, right? Things have finally gotten off the rail bad enough to where prayer has finally become a priority to me. And I, so I come running in, but I come running in with my list and my pressing issues, and I run right past whoever God is. I'm not even looking for who God is. I'm not paying attention to who God is. In the moment that I'm driven to prayer, it's because my problems in life are monumental, and I'm finally convinced I can't do this. And so what do I do? I run right past the beginning of this prayer into... <laughs> Have you seen this? Have you seen what's going on here? Where have you been? I, I don't even know who you are in this moment. I am just a specialist in my own world. And I have an audience with whatever this being is. But Jesus doesn't start there. He starts with what's more important for you to be aware of than how big your needs are is who God is. And in this prayer, there's some rich language here, right? Well, who is this God? Well, he is our father, and he is in heaven, and his name is hallowed. That's who he is, right? So that's just what I want to unpack for us today. This priority of awareness in my life, I need to be aware uh, much more than this, but I'm not, I'm not even going to develop the word hour. That's a whole other thing. But what does it mean for this God to be father? Right? I mean, I, I throw the term God out at us. It's a little foreign, right? I mean, it's, it's, he's a different being. He's spiritual. He's made of different stuff than us. He's not, he's not born like you and I are. He's not limited like we are. So there's a lot of mystery in this term, God. But there's something familiar to us about the term father. I get that a little bit. I don't get it completely, but I get it a bit. And how interesting that God wants us to know him. So he pulls himself into a category that you and I get a little bit. He is father. What a rich, rich word this is. But let me just say this. This is no small issue that he is father. Right, R.C. Sproul says, we fail to grasp what a radical thing it is to refer to God in this way. The German theologian Joachim Jeremias did a study in which he searched through the Old Testament writings and existent rabbinic writings from ancient Jewish sources. He could not find a single example ever 
of a Jewish writer or author addressing God directly as Father in prayer until the 10th century A.D. He found examples of God being referred to as the Father. Right, you'll find that in the Old Testament. There's 15 references in the Old Testament to God as the Father, something in a title-ish kind of a way, not, but not personally an individual calling God Father. Now, when we get into the New Testament, you're going to find the stats change ridiculously. It's like 65 times Jesus refers to Father personally in the Synoptic Gospels, another 100 times in the Gospel of John alone. So something shifts here later on. But he said he, he found examples of God being referred to as the Father, but the word Father was never used in a direct form of personal address. The Israelites never addressed God as Father. Jeremiah also examined the prayers of Jesus, and there he made an equally fascinating discovery. In every prayer of Jesus recorded in the New Testament except one, he addresses God as Father. And then this radical shift takes place. He turns to God's people, and he teaches them to relate to God that way as well. When you pray, pray this way. Father, this is, this is upside down, freak you out stuff for these guys to hear. That kind of intimacy, that kind of connection with this God who I thought was more like the Wizard of Oz, powerful, wrathful, bringing judgment, righteous, unapproachable, different than us, holy. I, I'm going to have to take a moment to get my mind around this. This is, this is outrageous. Now listen, they were Israelites who were raised a certain way to see authority and to see God a certain way. We're Americans and we're raised totally different. Can I just tell you, ain't nobody in this room going, oh, I, don't, I don't think it's all that amazing call God Father. Don't you always call God Father? What else do you call him? We've lost a sense of amazement because we're very presumptuous. We're very presumptuous people. We presume God owes us. God needs to work this thing out in a way that's appealing to me and right for me. And of course, he, of course he's my father. You know, the Bible doesn't sound that way. The Bible sounds like, wow, are you serious? I can call that God father? I can relate to him personally and intimately that way? Now, if you failed to see this, if you failed to see this radical shift, I probably would guess you have failed to understand the gospel very well as well. Because the ability for you and me to relate to God as Father is intimately and completely connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is where it's, it's kind of a strange thing here. This is where Christianity gets very exclusive because Jesus Christ was a unique, special person in the history of this world who did something that no one else could ever do. And so the idea that there are human beings who relate to the higher power who created everything and somehow think that he is their father, but they have no understanding of what Jesus Christ has done is completely antagonistic to the Bible. The Bible bases your father-son, father-child relationship with God on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Very important for us to see this. Look in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26 through the beginning of Galatians chapter 4. Now, I mean, this is going to be a little bit of a doctrinal dive into the deep end here, uh, and, and I'm going to do a little bit of a, a job of unpacking some of it, but 
But this is the basis for which you are calling God Father. What you're about to read right now is the basis for anybody in this room to call God Father. Now, if I, if I press you on this before I read it and I ask you, so what's the basis for you calling God Father? Most people are going to say, well, I mean, you know, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. I mean, everybody, everybody's God's child. All right, now, if you bring that idea to the Bible, I hope you bump into things that sound like, ooh, that doesn't seem to fit. Because the Bible's got something to say about God being our father. And it doesn't sound like, well, everybody's a child of God. So therefore, he's everybody's father. Well, listen carefully to this passage. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Through faith. All right, just read your Bible carefully when you read it. What's the implication of me messing with that sentence a little bit, even before I get any farther? All right, so what if I'm not in Christ Jesus? Because this says, in Christ Jesus, all are sons. Through faith, well, what if I don't express my faith in Jesus Christ? Am I still a son? Right, the Bible's saying something here. We can't afford to be ignorant of what the Bible says, and then when we read it, force it to say something that it doesn't say. It is saying what I just read it saying. There are conditions here, right? For as many of you, not all of you, but as many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, it doesn't assume that you are. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, right? Children are the heirs of their father. So what is it that makes someone an heir? Well, if you are Christ, then you are an heir, right? You guys familiar with if-then clauses? Right? This, is a, this is a logic lesson, and quite honestly, boy, this generation and this culture needs a logic lesson. Everything can't be true all at the same time. So you can read the Bible, and it, it definitely says, if this is true, then this is true. Well, what does it mean if this is not true? Well, then this isn't true either. And that's what this verse is saying. So if you are Christ's, then you are an heir. I mean that the heir, so long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And this has to do with the way in which adoption operated in the, the Roman Empire, in the Gentile world here. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, right, this is a big but here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Something radical happened. That word but spins humanity on a dime and says at one point, this is what was true. But God stepped into that mess in the person of Jesus Christ, and he did something that only he could do, and he satisfied something that had to be satisfied, and he redeemed, that word means he bought back that which had been lost. 
That's what he did. And when that happened, that happened so that we might receive adoption as sons. So if Jesus had never come and did what he did, would anybody be a son of God? No. But wait a minute, Keith, I thought everybody was a child of God. No, 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 no. Everybody is created by God. And in a sense, this is that title word, he is the father of all creation. But, but you, you do get, I mean, he's the father of the palm trees growing in your neighborhood in that sense. You get that, right? He's the father of Mars and the moon orbiting around this planet. He created everything. He's the, he's the originator of it all. It's not using that term in a relational father-son, father-daughter relationship. He's not the, you know, the plants don't turn around and say, it's so good to be a son of God. Uh, you know, they're plants. And that every human being doesn't get to say, it's so good to be a child of God. Because if Jesus Christ had not come and done what he did, no one would have been brought back to God. And no one would have been in a father-child relationship with God. And if one does not put their faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done, neither are they sons and daughters of God. And so this prayer that starts, our Father, is not a prayer that can be prayed by anybody and everybody who can read. He is only your Father when you have come through Christ in redemption into relationship with Him. And you have been born again by the Holy Spirit, and you have been adopted as a child of God. Do you know what really helps us? You know, many of us are already have made that decision there are benefits that come to our lives from being a child of God. Right? That word heir is a rich word. The thought of God being my father is a rich concept. I, I need to be aware of this on a daily basis. I need to be informed by it. Right? Wayne Grudem, speaking of these privileges, he says, one of the greatest privileges of our adoption is being able to speak to God and relate to him as a good and loving Father. We are to realize that we are no longer slaves, but sons. We now relate to God not as a slave relates to a slave master, but as a child relates to his or her father. Now listen, that falls on deaf ears for us because none of us are bumping into slaves. But the concept of slavery, and this is not colonial slavery for the most part, from what we understand in America, The concept of slavery in the Roman Empire was so common. If if you as an individual got into too much debt to that guy over there, you you would sell yourself into servanthood to him. And you would become a slave and he would become the master. And you would work for X number of years to work your way out of that situation. 40 to 50% of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. So when you lifted your eyes up and you heard this thought, you're no longer slaves but sons, everybody got it. Because, you know, walking around the property of the owner of all this stuff were his sons and were his slaves. And how many of you know the sons were not treated the same way as the slaves were treated? How many of you know that the sons had a different future ahead of them than the slaves did? So into this concept, we, we come this different relationship, that there is a relating to God that looks more like slave. No relationship, no specialness, and then there's these sons. 
sons are going to be specially treated. Right? The, the owner, the property owner, he doesn't scratch his head and wonder, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make my will out here. And, wow, there, I mean, there's just thousands of people that I know. I know I've just got to leave everything to everybody equally. You know? That's the God that most people believe in, by the way. He doesn't treat anybody special. Everybody just gets the same treatment by God. He's, he's got to do that. How many of you know that's not the God in the Bible? The God in the Bible is going to treat people specially. Now, before you fold your arms and say, well, I don't know if I like that. Well, how about if you're the one being treated specially? Do you like it now? <laughs> I mean, I not only like that, but I need to know that. Because life sometimes beats me up in exactly the same way that it beats up somebody who's a slave and who doesn't even know God. And in that moment, it's really helpful for me to recognize something else is going on here. Because my God is my father and I am his heir. How do I understand these events? I need to be aware of this truth, don't I? Because God doesn't treat his sons the way you treat slaves. So you are getting special treatment in this. And Grudem goes on and says, this relationship to God as our Father is the foundation of many other blessings of the Christian life. And it becomes the primary way in which we relate to God. Certainly, it is true that God is our creator, our judge, our Lord and master, our teacher, our provider and protector. And the one by his providential care sustains our existence. But the role that is most intimate and the role that conveys the highest privileges of fellowship with God for eternity is his role as our heavenly father. He is all those things. But Jesus begins this prayer setting the attention on, you are speaking to your father. And that needs to create imagery in us. That needs to create an awareness in us about what, what's God like if he's my father? What's he doing in my life if he's my father? What are his motives? What's he planning on if he's my father? And I need to be aware of that, right? So I think I put this in your outline. God is inclined toward us as a father would be. And we are to anticipate him being that way and to have a functioning awareness of this in our lives. Right, God, you know, again, I, I know this traffic, so I'm not, I'm not going to take time to deal with this. I know this traffic's in the issue that not everybody's got, had a good father. I know that's there. But one of the things, and if you'll hold on to that thought, one of the things that makes that so tragic is the unique high expectations you had for that man. That's why it's so painful. Because you expected so much of a father and it became so easy to let you down or to create hurt or harm. So there is this built-in expectation and anticipation about whatever a father is, it's pretty special. And it's gonna interact with my life in a pretty profound way and it's going to rescue and nurture and care. It's not going to do me harm. It's not going to make things worse. I have high expectations for a father. Well, into that title steps the father of all fathers and says, well, expect that from me then. Know that about me. Anticipate that I am that way in your life. And that's, that's how these verses, I just, I'm just going to throw several verses at you. 
of how God depicts himself as our father and what we come to anticipate when we're aware of this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Right? People in the culture have learned from the world how to pray. Well, the world was crying out to these impersonal deities, right? Roman and Gentile gods and superstitions. And, and so they would just do all kinds of practices. They, would, they had little tricks that they did. They had little idols. They had little things that they said back and forth. They just spoke because they couldn't quite figure out who this God is and what he's really like. So they just multiplied words upon words upon words without considering who is this God and how is he personally disposed toward me? And Jesus comes in and cuts the feet out of that. He says, do not relate to God that way. Your father knows what you need before you even ask him. What does that tell you about God? Right there, that one statement, if I just quit right now, what does that tell you about God and how he's postured toward you? You know, on Tuesday or on Friday or in February, I'm going to discover something about my life, right? Something I don't know right now. And in a panic, I'm going to run to God with it probably in prayer. It would be helpful for me to know that I am not informing God about that stuff. I'm not informing him because he's omnipresent. He stands outside of time. But in this passage, this is not about God's omniscience. This is about him being a father. This is about him paying careful attention. Much better attention to my life than I'm capable of paying or anybody else is capable of paying. So God wants to convey to me, I'm I'm your father, Keith. I, I watch over everything you do. Every place you want to put your foot, every goal that fashions in your heart, every dream you've ever had, every person that's going to come into your life, every event that's on the calendar that's awaiting you, I am watching over it. You know, Keith, you know a little bit about this because you're a father. You know a little bit about what you have in your heart towards your children. But you're an imperfect father. So in a lot of ways, Keith, you don't know what I'm talking about because I pay attention to your life in a way that you don't have any clue about paying attention to your own children. That's how God's postured in this passage. He is paying attention to the needs that are in our life. Matthew chapter 6, a little bit farther into that same Sermon on the Mount, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, Nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns. And yet, your heavenly Father, notice I didn't say their heavenly Father, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. All right, so this, this is, this is going to be life's story, right? I'm, I, I'm out of the chute. I'm living life. I'm traveling along. At some point, I'm going to bump into a level of need in my life. I'm going to do it. You've done it. 
need sits in some vaguely defined category. It could be a physical need, could be an emotional need, could be a need for a pathway to walk into the future, could be a need for purpose in my life. There's a lot of categories where a need could go, right? So at some point, I could be a person who's, who's very anxious about how do I put food on the table? How do I pay the bills? How do I provide for my family? Right? So I can be anxious about that. Or I could be a person who's anxious because I'm so ambitious about my future that I, I want things to work out this way. I want to accomplish these things and go in these places in my life. And I'm anxious about whether I'm going to be able to pull that off. It's all need. And when life bumps into need, Jesus says, you need to be aware that I'm your father in that moment. That's who I am to you. And you're more important to me than the birds that I make sure and meet their needs every day. I'm your father. You get that? Fear not, little flock. Why? Because it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what's in his heart. That's what he's like. That's how he feels toward you. So, so don't be afraid. The answer to fear is awareness that God is my father. The answer to needs that come into my life is awareness that God is my father. In Luke chapter 11, that passage says, what, what father among you, his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And what, what is, what's God trying to communicate here? God steps down quite a notch from this mysterious great being to a father. And he says, you know what, I know you get this father thing a little bit. And I know that, you know, if your children were asking for things, you wouldn't toy with them. You wouldn't mess with them. You wouldn't do things in their life just to, just to mess them over. You know, he asked for this, I gave him that instead. And if you're evil and you wouldn't do that, what do you expect from me? Who's perfect and loving in everything that I do. I'm your father. Right? I, apparently, Jesus says there's going to be a moment here where it feels like if, uh, if you've got a serpent going on or a scorpion going on in your life, you're going you're gonna to question the goodness of God. And in that moment, you need to, you're going to need to be aware that God is my Father. He doesn't play those kinds of tricks on his kids. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And listen, I'm just giving you some places to explore this, right? I'm just introducing a topic to you, but you're going to have to go sit with God, get quiet with him, study out, and, and just let the fact that God is our Father come to life. Hebrews 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. Right, you guys, 
You, get, you guys know what kind of words sit in the same sentence with discipline? Does pain sit in that sentence for you? Yeah. Does challenge and obstacle and delay and stick with it and persevere sit in the same sentence with discipline? All right, so be careful because when I start experiencing pain, I, I go to interpret that. When I start experiencing delay and challenge and difficulty, and boy, I've been staying with this thing, and it just isn't changing, in that moment, I'm tempted to believe that God has forgotten about me. That somehow, he's not paying attention. But then I become aware that the Bible says that's not possible. He's my father. It's not possible for him to be unaware. His love and devotion to me as his child. He doesn't fall asleep. At the, now, I might do that, but he never does that. So if this feels like setback, difficulty, delay, challenge, pain, might it be my loving, wise father is disciplining and discipline is for my good. Now, if I'm not aware that God is my father, I'm, I'm sort of in a bad spot when that discipline comes to me because I don't have a category for it now. I'm not aware that God's my father. So why, God? Why would you be dealing with me like this? Why would you be letting this happen? Why, would, why, why, why? Because I'm not aware that God's a father. And sometimes this father is capable of going 10 miles ahead in my life, uh, 50 miles ahead to the day of judgment or all the way into eternity and say, you know what, Keith, I've seen the future and what you need right now is delay and difficulty and pain. So, you know, if you're a father who's ever had to make a decision to bring that sort of stuff in your kids' lives, that, that's a difficult moment, isn't it? Right, you're, you're, maybe you've got a child who's made the wrong decision after the wrong decision after the wrong decision after the wrong decision, and, you've, and, and in mercy you have rescued them from consequences and rescued them from consequences. And eventually you come to the place where you recognize, you know what, 20 years from now, me rescuing you over and over again, I'm not going to be here. And that's not going to work. And so the most loving thing I can do in your life is not rescue you. And guess what happens when those consequences fall on that child? They are painful. They set them back. Yet, were you doing that because you were ticked off, had enough, and were ready to crush them? Or were you doing that because out of love, a father makes some really tough calls because he knows what's coming? Right, well, there are moments in our lives where God's doing something disciplinary. It could be consequential to decisions we've made. It could just be something that has got nothing to do with decisions that we've made. God just has allowed something, brought something for a purpose that's later on. But, but what rescues me from dislodging from God is for me to be aware this is my father doing this. He is not evil. He is not corrupt. He is not against me. I am aware he is for me. So conclusion on that point, we are to be doing life with a deep 
and abiding and permeating and frame of mind altering awareness of God being our Father. Now, what's interesting here is where this prayer goes next. And I'm only going to skim by this because I probably say more in this category than I usually say about God being our Father. All right? So this ultimate God is our Father, uh, but who exactly is he? Is he weak? Because if God is weak, but he loves me like a father, I love the sentiment of that, but he ain't going to be of much help, is he? Because there's a lot of stuff that this well-intended, really, really loving father doesn't have the resources to pull off. He can't really protect me from certain things. He can't really help me with certain things because he's got his own limits. But I'm so grateful that he's so affectionate and loves me as a father. Okay, but this is a father who art in heaven, whose name is hallowed, different other than outside of any other name. This is who my father is. Leon Morris says, the one whom we call father is at the same time supremely great as the fact that he is in heaven reminds us. We should not miss the balance in this opening to the prayer. We address God intimately as father, but we immediately recognize his infinite greatness with the addition of in heaven. He is a father like no other being. He is in heaven. John Calvin says, when the scripture says that God is in heaven, the meaning is that all things are subject to his dominions, that the world and everything in it is held by his hand, that his power is everywhere diffused, that all things are arranged by his providence. David says, he that dwelleth in the heavens shall laugh at them, right? That's a passage having to do with people who are plotting and scheming against the plans of God. The Bible says God sits in the heavens and laughs. <laughs> like, who are you kidding me? Really? You think you can rise up against me? Again, it says, our God is in heaven. He hath done whatever he hath pleased. Right? This God in heaven, he rules from heaven. It is a throne in which God is in completely control of everything. He answers to no higher authority. That's who our Father is in the grand scheme of the universe. I think I wrote this out in your outline. Let me read it to you. It would be inappropriate and confusing to choose to embrace the description of God as Father, but not the other biblical depictions, even in this brief prayer. There is more here about God than just Father. He is in heaven. He's not limited to the earth. He is hallowed. He is a king who rules a kingdom that is not of this world. That's all in this prayer. Your kingdom come, the one where you are king, and you decree whatever will be in your kingdom. Lord, let that kingdom come. So I'm called into this awareness that God is immensely personal and intimate and involved like a father is in my life but he is staggeringly powerful and unique in all of creation with perspective that is clarified by what's in heaven. Right? Ecclesiastes 5 gives this interesting thought as we come to God. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For, here's why, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. What, 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 what's that contrast trying to accomplish? I mean, the slang translation is, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. So let your words be few, okay? But God, on the other hand, God is in heaven. And he knows everything. It's interesting that it has to highlight for us, be not rash with your mouth. All right, how, many, how many times do you and I get into life and we get in and over our heads and we cannot explain this? It goes on for too long. It has too much of a price tag. It is suffering we didn't expect. Whatever it is, we get into that moment and we, and we turn to God with accusations. And we rail on him and we charge him with things. And we are rash with our words. And this verse informs us, just like our Father who art in heaven, informs us about God before we come running to him like we have enough information to understand what's going on and bring a charge. Let me, let me tell you what's capable, what's possible in this arena. And I, I say this from personal experience. I experience enough categories of life where I'm scratching my head saying, I don't understand. I don't get why this has, has happened. I don't get why this keeps happening. I don't get why that circumstance is in that person's life. I don't, I don't see the good of this. Oh, sure, I can imagine whatever, but I, I don't see it. And you know what? guards me from becoming rash, and, and I'm not saying I don't get to the edge of rash, but what guards me from becoming rash is what's in that verse. God is in heaven. He knows everything. He knows what he's doing. I am on earth. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. You can say hell. It's in the Bible. So there is, there is something about approaching God with an awareness that he is the creator and I'm a creature. I have a brain a little bit about the size of my fist. There is information I have no idea about. I don't manage the universe. I, I don't get a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. And I approach God and I live life. I, I have to posture my heart in humility. It doesn't mean I, that makes me like every circumstance. It doesn't mean that I can explain all circumstances. I can still be scratching my head at the end of the day. I'm, I'm just sure of this. God knows what he's doing, whatever it is. And there are moments and there are tragedies in people's lives that rip me open. And what guards my heart is God knows what he's doing. 
and I'm on earth and I understand so little. That's not an easy moment. This is where, this is where awareness is so important. I have to be aware that my father is my father. I have to be aware that he is in heaven. His perspective is flawless. He takes everything into account. He's not capable of mistreating me. And he's not capable of being surprised. And he's not capable of planning poorly. He's not capable of any of that. He is my father who is in heaven. And his name is hallowed. He is like no other being that I know. He is unique in all of creation. He is outside of creation. He is creator. Everything else is created. I cannot think of him in the same category with his creation, for he's outside of his creation. So I, I need to be able to just stand in awe and go, Lord, there's a lot about you that I don't get. But you gave me a little bit to be aware of, and it's enough. You told me you're my father. And your perspective is a perfect, high, lofty one in heaven. And there's no one like you. Listen, I, I need some awareness in this category. I need awareness that lets God be fully God in categories that are not my favorite categories. Hallowed be your name. It has to do with God's holiness. Do you, do you know quite a bit of this book is devoted to God's holiness? Do you know that there are special beings that are created by God, that are equipped by God to simply declare the holiness of God? Those beings that Isaiah saw, those unique creatures that had multiple wings in order to fly close to God, but to be able to cover themselves up because they were going to encounter holiness in a way that was going to undo them. And it undoes Isaiah, and he falls to the ground. This, this God, he's mysterious, and he's uncomfortable in some ways. J.I. Packer says, first, God is holy, he's different, standing apart from us, awesome, sometimes becoming fearsome to us. Holiness is a biblical technical term signifying the godness of God. The combined quality of being infinite and eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent and omniscient, utterly pure and just, utterly faithful to his own purposes and promises, morally perfect in all his relationships, and marvelously merciful to persons meriting the opposite of mercy. Right? That's a mouthful of holiness right there. That's who God is. Now, now here's where we're not comfortable, and, you, and you've got to get comfortable with this. I love this illustration that Tim Keller tells. So it's almost like knowing God is like swinging a pendulum. You know, on one side of the pendulum, we've got God is your father. And nobody here is objecting to that one, right? Got nobody going, oh, man, that's just what makes me so uncomfortable about God. We love that idea. We want that to be deep and meaningful to us. But on this other side, there are these mysterious categories that we don't quite get, and we're not always quite as comfortable. Like God is holy, pure, and powerful, just. We'd rather... We'd rather be really deep in knowing God as Father. But, but can I tell you, like a, a true pendulum, you can only swing as far in this direction as you're willing to swing as far as this direction. Because you want to, I don't know, that holiness thing, I just want about 
you know, two inches of holiness. Well, guess what you're going to get when it swings back the other way? Two inches of father. This is why grace is so cheap for, for too many people because they love the feeling of grace. They love this sense of God is disposed toward me for reasons that have got nothing to do with me. Eh, that's all I want to know. Thank you. That works. That works for me. I like that a lot. Can I swing really far in this direction? You will never sing about grace correctly, ever. Because until your pendulum swings in the other direction and you see what a monumental, amazing thing God did to conquer something in himself to give you and I what we don't deserve, to satisfy his own righteousness and justice. Listen, there's a reason why Jesus Christ had to be who he said he was and he had to do what he said he did. Otherwise, there's no cozying up to God as our father. So you don't get this, God is my father, that is so stinking amazing until the pendulum swings in the other direction and you realize I've got no business being his son. I am so different than him. Some of us never want to look at ourselves in a way that will let us see God as amazing. Again, listen, I need to stop, but <laughs> what, what a disservice you're doing to your relationship with God. You're so afraid to encounter yourself. Men, I'm, I'm going to warn you, and I'm going to also uh, encourage you. One of the things we're going to do at the men's retreat, and I'm going to share this with you in the first session, is I'm going to do my best to introduce you to you. And there's a whole room full of us that have spent our lives running from us. I don't want to see me. I don't want to know me. I don't want to know what it's like to have to relate to me. I don't want to look at me under a microscope. I don't want to see any of that. Unfortunately, you're going to stay like you are in so many categories. And secondly, your worship for God will be so small. Because the word amazement to you will be lost. Because you'll start thinking you're God's next door neighbor. <laughs> I'm not that bad. I mean, there's people worse than me. I mean, God lives a few doors down. Not amazing that he hangs out with you then, is it? Well, of course not. I live in his neighborhood. He and I are pals. Father, of course he's my father. He's always been my father. God and chummy are synonyms. God's been longing to hang out with me since forever. You know, it's not quite that simple. God loves you in an unbelievably amazing way, but you'll never know how unbelievably amazing that is until you see there's an adversative element to me that is falling short of the glory of God and not interested in God, and I'm very selfish, and I want my own kingdom, the hell with yours. That's who I am. And then God steps in and says, I'm going to be your father and I'm going to forgive, and I'm going to love, and I'm going to restore you to myself, that will freak you out when you get a good look at yourself. And by the way, it'll also liberate you from yourself. So you're not going to sit around navel-gazing, oh, great, Keith, you're going to make me stare at myself. Uh, listen, until you get a good look at yourself and you apply the reality of the forgiveness of God to you, you are navel-gazing at yourself in a way that I could never make you do it. So, you know, please don't dump this on me. I get dumped on in this category. I oh, walk out of here sometimes feeling worse. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes medicine tastes really bad. Sometimes diagnosis is not the funnest thing, but it's on its way to a cure. 
And to let you leave here with a big dose of yourself that you've been running around handling without looking at it in light of the cross and the radical forgiveness that comes to us through the cross, I'm not doing you a service to make you feel better. What will make you feel better is ultimate forgiveness. That'll make you feel better. And there ain't nothing I can say to give it to you, and there's nothing anybody can do in your life to give it to you. You're going to have to get it from Christ. So don't be afraid to look at yourself in the presence of God. Don't, don't do that. God will liberate you in that moment. But, yeah, Eric, go ahead and come, buddy. All right, awareness. We are fighting for awareness. And so this morning, as I just close us in prayer, Jesus wanted awareness of him being our father to touch things like fear, anxiety, need, confusing, challenging seasons that he called discipline, but for us just feel like pain. In those moments, I need to be aware God is my father. He is in heaven. There's no one like him. This morning, can we just stop for a moment and and ask God to help cultivate that awareness in us, to begin to set us in a place where in the days ahead, it's not just a message issue. This is a a moment by moment. I need to cultivate an awareness in these categories in my life. And I'm going to do that this week. God, I need to grow deep because life feels deep. I need to be aware of this in a deep way. Let's stand up together. Lord, as you interacted in the the real life spaces of your disciples' lives, their anxieties about the future, how their needs would get met, fears that they experienced as they awaited the coming of your kingdom, confusing moments where they perhaps didn't understand why you were doing what you were doing. Lord, you you taught them something. You told them to stare at a particular place. You reminded them of something that was true, this radical, radical concept. The God of all that is, is our Father. Lord, I know that in this room there are some here who have lost sight of that. Lord, would you speak those words to their soul? Lord, as they have been tempted to speak rashly, they have been questioning, doesn't make sense. Why, Lord? Or maybe you won't explain all that you do, but there's something of an explanation in you just telling us 
it's okay. I'm your father. I'm with you. I knew about this. I already anticipated this day. I've already seen it. Do you know that I'm watching over every day? I'm watching you every moment. Remember, I've counted the hairs on your head. I'm your father. I am mysterious and I am powerful and I am eternal and I am spirit and I am things that you don't fully get, but I am your father. You think I'd forget you? You think I wouldn't provide for you? You think I'd ignore you? You think I'm too busy for you? I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You are mine. I did not spare my own son, sent him so that you could be reconciled, so that you could say, Abba, Father. And I could call you my sons and daughters. I have not forgotten you. I have not neglected you. Lord, you knew that we would need an awareness of this, God. You knew that we would live our lives and do life there will be moments where we just need to stop, crawl into your presence, and the first thing out of our mouth needs to be rich and dripping with the imagery that you are our Father. I don't get all this other stuff, but I know that's true. God, you are my Father. So, Father, would you... This year, Lord, these are things we can't lose sight of. Lord, this, it's a short list. You've given us several things to make sure that we are aware of. God, help us to be aware of who you are, the specialness of who you are to us. We are not just like plants and trees. We are not like lost people. We are your special sons and daughters. You could not forget us. You could not, and you will not. So, Lord, we draw near to you this morning and we make ourselves aware. Lord, thank you. And you are our Father. Help us to know that deeply every day, every moment. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And bless you guys. Amen.